As image bearers of God, we were made to look at beauty and be awestruck, right? Or to put it another way, we were made for worship. We were made to be amazed and struck with awesome reverence. And there's something deep inside of us that understands this. And I would say there's something deep inside of every person, regardless of how religious or irreligious they may claim to be. It's why 35,000 people make a very inconvenient trip to Nepal in order to try to climb Mount Everest. It's why 4.5 million people visit the Grand Canyon each year. It's why 3.5 million people go to Yosemite National Park each year and 30 million people falls. We were made for awe. We were not made to look into the mirror and fall in love with what we see. But we were made for more than just being struck with the majesty and beauty of created things. Though there is majesty and beauty there, like Mount Everest and the Grand Canyon, God made us for himself. And we are lost in the wilderness until we find our hearts in awe of him. We're to look through the created beauty around us and see the majesty and beauty of our God. In order to do this, we need a high and lofty and what I would call a big God theology. A big God theology is one that doesn't confine God to our understanding and our tastes, but rather has our understanding and tastes informed and transformed by what God reveals about him and his word. And why would we settle for anything less, right? Christ redeemed us to reconcile us to God, the Father. And why would we settle for anything less than for God to show us all that he intends to show us of himself? A small view of God tends to lead to an enlarged view of self and our self-importance. It tends to lead to a small view of sin and consequently a small view of Christ and salvation. Certainly the Bible points us in the other direction. It exalts God. It, minimize, it, it, it brings us low. It, uh, it magnifies the, the grotesqueness of sin. And of course, the central message of the Bible is Christ and the glorious and gracious salvation God gives us through him. There are texts in the New Testament uh, where Paul or Jude or Peter are writing, giving instruction in one of their letters, and they just seem to break out in this spontaneous praise and blessing to God. We call it a doxology. Doxa is the Greek word that's translated glory. So doxology is where glory is given to God, and we see this in many places. One such doxology is Romans 11 33 to 36, and this is after Paul labors for three chapters, well, not for three chapters, really for 10, 11 chapters, but in particular, Romans 9, 10, and 11, he labors to expound on the freedom of God's grace, and then he gets carried away in praise and says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Inscrutable means beyond being found out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The answer is nobody. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Another such doxology, perhaps my favorite, is found in the last two verses of the short book of Jude. Verses 24 and 25, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be majesty, glory, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What's the point of such passages of Scripture? Well, they're not without significance. It's not just highfalutin spiritual talk. God never wastes words in his book. The purpose is to strengthen our faith in the kind of God who is our Father. This is what he's like. This is who he is. And it's also to fuel awe-inspired worship. A small God theology can never produce such praise that leads us to glory in God as he is worthy of. Well, in our text this morning, we have such a doxology. And I thought it would be worth to fix our attention on it this week. Our call to fight the good fight of faith is great. Reed talked on that last week. It is a great call. It is a serious call. It is a sober call. It is even, quite frankly, a daunting call. It is a great call to fight the good fight of faith all the way to the, to the end of our lives or to when Christ returns, whichever happens first. I urge you, if you weren't here last week or didn't hear the message for whatever reason, if you're teaching, Go back and listen to it. The, the fight, the call to fight the good fight of faith is great. I want to look at two verses here that show us clearly that that call's great, but our God is greater. Our God is greater, and he can help us as we fight the good fight of faith. And my prayer is that he would strengthen your faith in God and that he would fuel your worship of our awesome God as you fight the good fight of faith and as you do so until the appearing of Christ. So let me just read verses 15 and 16 again because that's where I want to focus our attention this morning. This doxology exalting in our great God. Here's what Paul says. Which he will display at the proper time. Speaking about the, the appearing of Christ. He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him belong honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As Paul magnifies God, he shines a spotlight specifically or I would say primarily on God's 
absolute sovereignty. Every Christian confesses that God is sovereign. Every Christian says, of course, God is sovereign. Of course, he is king. Of course, he reigns and rules. But one might mean something very different than another. And so hopefully today, I can, I can give you an anchor point for your understanding of God as sovereign. Verse 15 says, he is the blessed and only sovereign Paul uses the word sovereign here not to describe what sovereignty is. I think the rest of 15 and 16 does that. But rather, he uses it as a title for God. God is our sovereign. Some translations, uh, probably probably many of the older ones, King James, I know for sure, New King James does as well, uses an interesting word instead of sovereign. It says that he is our blessed and only potentate. It's a word we don't use very often anymore. You don't hear that very often. But a potentate is someone who has great power. You hear the, maybe the, you notice the first part of that word potent, right? Power. A potentate is someone who has great power, a prince or a king or a monarch or the word in the ESV and ASB and so forth, a sovereign. Someone who has great power or sway. Our God is the blessed and only potentate or sovereign. And he doesn't merely possess some power or even great power. He possesses all power, right? He doesn't possess some. He's not not potent merely. We confess that our God is omnipotent. That he has all power. We throw that word around, but it means that he has all power. And if you sit and think about that a bit and let that go into all the corners of your mind and heart, into every corner of life, you realize that's pretty extensive. All power belongs to our God. He is almighty. Psalm 91, 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So the Bible gives God the name El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. Now Paul uses two words to describe the kind of sovereign that our God is. First he says that he is the blessed sovereign. The word blessed here is really kind of a unique word, really a wonderful word, but it may seem kind of strange here. There there are basically two words in the New Testament that are translated blessed. One of them means to, to give praise. God is blessed in, in, in the sense that he is to be praised. We might say, bless the Lord, right? Oh, my soul. We praise the Lord. And this word that's translated blessed here is a, is a different word. And it means happy or fortunate. God is our blessed sovereign or he is our happy sovereign. Paul uses this word to describe God also in 1 Timothy 1.11 when he describes the gospel this way. He says the gospel of the glory of the blessed or happy God. What does this mean that God is blessed or happy? I wonder if you, when you think of God, I wonder if the word happy comes to mind or that God is overflowing with joy. 
Well, certainly I think it means that he's perfectly happy in himself and all of his perfections, right? He's not self-conscious. He's not discouraged with who he is, like sometimes we can be, right? We're, we can be discouraged with who we are, our shortcomings, our weaknesses. God is certainly not because he's perfect in all of his ways. He is good in the fullest sense of that word. So he is perfectly happy with who he is. But I think it also means that he is blessed or emotionally happy in his ability to carry out his will and purposes. God is not frustrated because he's unable to do what he wants. I was thinking about, you know, every time, without fail, I try to do a project on one of our cars, even if I get it done, which sometimes I don't. Okay. I take it to the mechanic. But every time I work on one without fail, I feel like pulling my hair out. A project that I think is going to take an hour takes me two afternoons, six hours, eight hours. Or I start on a project and like what happened about a month ago and I had to end up getting my car, my car towed and paying a lot more than I anticipated to get it fixed. There's frustration because I plan to do something and I can't carry it out, or at least not in a timely manner, or the way that I want to. God is not frustrated like that. And I hope that actually encourages you. As we live in a world that seems like, to unbelievers certainly, and even to us, we look around, we, we say, what is going on? It's insane. And God is not wringing his hands Wondering how everything got out of control. Psalm 135 verses 4 and 5 says this, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Now it says in heaven, we, we might agree with that, but also says on the earth, in the seas, and all the deeps. Our God is the blessed sovereign. I wonder if it encourages you that the sovereign God you have been reconciled to is not moody or frumpy. He's happy. He's happy in the perfect work of Christ on your behalf. He's happy with his choice to save you and adopt you into his family. He's happy you're part of his family. He really is. And those who know that, guess what? It helps us be happy too. He is the blessed sovereign. But Paul also says he's the blessed and only sovereign. In other words, there is no rival. He is un rivaled in his rule and reign. The UN does not rival God. China, with its mighty military, does not rival God. The United States does not rival God. Our president does not rival God. The Supreme Court doesn't rival God. Congress does not rival God. He is unrivaled in his sovereignty. Now, of course, there's no doubt that we have an enemy of our souls, the devil, Satan, who is like a, a lion prowling around seeking whom he, he may devour. But we must never, ever, ever 
act like or even think or even entertain the idea that somehow Satan and God are equal powers. Never. God is the only sovereign. I think it was Martin Luther, I think, who said, the devil is God's devil. He's a created being, right? Remember last week's question two, what is, what is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. That's what the Bible teaches. Of course, the devil is real. He does real harm. And we are to know him as our adversary. But as we see in the story of Job, and we could talk about many other places in the scriptures, God, the sovereign, has the right and the power to say to the devil, you may go that far and no further. God is the blessed and only sovereign. How does God exercise his sovereignty? How does he exercise his omnipotence, his his ability and power to reign and rule as the sovereign? Well, he exercises his sovereignty over the events of human history. Verse 15, the first phrase in our text says, which he will display at the proper time. Again, this is referring to the return of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that the return of Christ, God will display that at the proper time. Proper time according to whom? God. Right? A more literal translation would say, and maybe, maybe some translations that you, a translation you have here of the Bible says, which he will display in his times. I was thinking yesterday as I was pondering this and musing this thought that in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered his disciples to him and, and he, uh, he's giving them some instructions. He was with them 50 days, but it, it seems like right before he ascended, his disciples said, is it now, Jesus? Is now the time that you're going to reestablish Israel and his kingdom? And Jesus' response is, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has, a, has fixed by his own authority. God is sovereign over the affairs of human history. Galatians 4 says that God the Father sent forth his Son into the world, he uses this phrase, in the fullness of time. At just the right time, right? At just the right time, God sent his Son into the world at the time that he had fixed from all eternity. When Christ walked the earth, I I noticed this so clearly recently reading through the book of John, when he walked the earth and made enemies because he claimed to be equal with God, he claimed to be God's own son, he made enemies and they wanted to kill him, but they couldn't. John 7 verse 30 tells us why they couldn't when it says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, later when the time of his crucifixion had come 
Jesus said this in Mark 14, 41, the hours come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And our text says that God has appointed a day on which Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. Christ will appear, the Father will display it at the appointed time, at the proper time, in his own times. Human history is in God's hands. Now, you might say, well, that's only Christ-related events. So let's talk about our lives. Psalm 139 says that all the days of our lives are written in God's book. And they were written before we lived any of them. And as God's beloved children, this is meant to give us great comfort. Who would you rather have be in charge of your life, you or the sovereign, the omnipotent God? Proverbs 16.33 says that God is sovereign even over seemingly random events. It says the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Again, this is meant to give us comfort and security, comfort in God's good intention toward us, comfort in God's good timing of things. Do you ever, do you ever struggle being patient when you're waiting on the Lord? Anyone besides me, okay? We're to wait on the Lord, right? We're encouraged to wait on the Lord. Last Saturday, we did a study in, in, in Psalm 40. I waited patiently upon the Lord. That's hard to do. This, hopefully, can help us as we wait and we seek, right? We don't just wait passively, but as we wait and seek and call out to God, this can help us leave things in his hands. John Stott, commenting on this verse, said, Our confidence in God's perfect timing and our consequent willingness to leave things in his hands arise from the kind of God we know him to be. He is good. He is our Father. He is kind. He is gracious. He is wise. And this is not fatalism. This is not fatal. This is not case sera What will be, will be, right? Fatalism is impersonal. Fate is an impersonal force, right? But we believe that the blessed and only sovereign is a personal God who happens to be our Father. He exercises his sovereignty for our good. And so we are to fight the good fight of faith, and we're to do so until God's perfect timing of Christ's return or his perfect time of our departure from this world happens, whichever's first. Think of the connection, Romans 8, 28, all the way through to 8, 32. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's what we're talking about here. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be called to be conformed to the, to the image of his own son, so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And then Paul says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
right? That, that's, that's what this truth is meant to evoke in us, this sense, this God is for me in and through Christ. It can give us a great confidence, even a, a fearlessness, not a human bravado, but a humble confidence and fearlessness and courage as we approach life. God is sovereign in the events of human history, but Paul also says that God is sovereign, or he exercises his sovereignty over kings and lords, and of course there's overlap here, but verse 15 goes on to say, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. More literally, this phrase says, the ruler over those who exercise rule, and the Lord over those who exercise lordship. There are kings and there are lords, there are governments and judges, there are parliaments and congresses, and our God is king over them all. They owe, they all owe their allegiance to him. Romans 13, right? Human governments are instituted by God, And they are supposed to be his servants that punish evil and commend good. Of course, godless kings and governors and presidents and prime ministers do not like to hear that, that they owe God allegiance. Do you remember Herod's response when the wise men showed up in Jerusalem and said, hey, we're looking for the new king that's been born? It says Herod was troubled, or some could be translated terrified, and he sought to kill him. At the time Paul wrote this, 1 Timothy in AD 64-65, Nero was the emperor. He was a murderous thug who demanded submission as lord. And citizens of the ever-expanding Roman Empire were required to burn a pinch of incense and say the words, Caesar is Lord. Christians were good citizens. You know, the, well, the Roman government, the Roman Empire, Caesar thought he was being so tolerant. You can worship other gods, no problem. You can worship any god you choose. Just pledge your allegiance to Caesar. And Christians, of course, said we cannot, we must not, we dare not. Ungodly kings, lords, and governments, wicked men and women who have ruled always seek for the kind of homage and submission that is owed to God alone. They always have. Francis Schaeffer said, if, there, if, if there's a government that does not allow for civil resistance, that government is setting itself up as God. But even ungodly rulers and lords are subject to our sovereign, the sovereign, the, the blessed and only sovereign, and he rules over them. And he rules not just in a passive way. He's not, God is not just a figurehead. Right? Like, when you think of the Queen of England now, she has like 
like almost no authority, right? It used to be that it was an absolute monarch in, in Great Britain. The United Kingdom was an absolute monarch and the king or queen ruled with absolute power and authority. It's not like that anymore. Well, God is not like the Queen of England now, okay? He's not just a figurehead. He's not sitting on a throne passively and mostly unable to do and unable to rule over kings and lords and governments now. He exercises dominion now over kings and rulers for his own purposes. Psalm 110.1 says, this is the father speaking to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, speaking of Christ, for he must reign until every enemy is put under his feet. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. King Nebuchadnezzar learned this the hard way. After being warned that his pride would lead to God's judgment, he continued in his arrogance and pride. And so God judged him and made the most powerful man, probably the most powerful man on the earth at the time, behave like a wild beast for seven years. At the end of the ordeal, Nebuchadnezzar confessed the following about our God, who is the blessed and only sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, said this, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Our blessed and only sovereign is the ruler of those who exercise rule. He is the sovereign over the President of the United States and over the Supreme Court and over the Congress and over all of the laws that they pass. He is sovereign over any or all who may seek to put together some kind of one world government. He's sovereign over them all. I was listening to, you know, it's, it's Christmas season. I break out, you know, Handel's Messiah about this time of year and I was listening to the Hallelujah Chorus and of course, we all know the, the part where they just sing hallelujah over and over again, right? But there's, toward the end of, of that part of Messiah, uh, part, that, that song, it says, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. John Newton, who wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, said this. I thought this was so good. There's one political maxim that gives me comfort. The Lord reigns. Amen? Our sovereign God is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. Paul goes on in verse 16 to say that our blessed and only sovereign is the sole possessor of unending life. Verse 16, who alone, he's the only one, who alone has immortality. 
God alone possesses intrinsically by right as part of his essential being unending life, deathlessness. He will not, he cannot die. The life that we possess, brothers and sisters, we may think we're hot stuff, but hey, the life we possess is a borrowed life. That old hymn, Uh, What is it? I sing the mighty power of God, I think is what it's called. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. Our life is a borrowed life. For in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Last week's question, God is the creator. He made us and he is the sustainer of everyone and everything. There is no life outside of God. He gives life and breath to everything. I didn't look it up, but um, a psalm somewhere, I don't know, beyond halfway, I think, I don't know, somewhere in the hundreds, I think, there's a psalm that says he gives to the beasts their food, he gives them life, and when he takes it away, they die. He is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. But this is talking about not just life in the abstract, but immortality, unending life. Eternal life is a gift from God to be received by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who possesses the power, Hebrews 7 says, of an indestructible life. The opposite of eternal life is not the ceasing to exist. When someone dies apart from Christ, they don't cease to exist. But it is called a perishing. It is a a kind of perishing. I think it's accurate that we call it, that we would call it a kind of eternal dying. It's not that someone dies and ceases to exist, but they eternally are dying. Think about how hell is described. It's it's described as the outer darkness. It's described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or it's described as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But those who are in Christ by faith, immortality. Why? Because he shares his life with us. He shares his unending life with us. Jesus said in John 5 that the Father has life in himself and he has given it to the Son to possess life in himself and he gives it to whomever he will. Jesus Christ, our resurrected, triumphant King, shares his unending life with us. And when Jesus returns, we're told that, he, that we will be clothed with immortality. Here's how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put, on imperish- must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Praise his name. It's, it's more than our, our eternal life, this unending life is more than merely breathing and having a beating heart. Eternal life, immortality, is when death is swallowed up in the great victory of Jesus Christ. And we are with our happy sovereign forever. An unending joy in his presence. Isn't that good news? This is who our God is. Now you see why, why Paul is so taken up with he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, whom no one has seen or ever can see, who dwells in unapproachable light. To him belong, or to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, you and I, going back to... Reads main emphasis last week. We're to fight the good fight of faith. It's a good fight. It's a serious fight. It's a great fight. It's even a daunting one, but it is a good fight. And Reed made this point it's so good. This is something, we shouldn't think that something's wrong when we're in a fight. This is what we're called to. It's a good fight of faith. And do it. With your eye fixed on your great God, on your great God, on the God who called you to himself, on the God who saved you and rescued you to the uttermost through Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer. So fight the good fight of faith with your eye fixed on God who will help and empower you and with a life of worship. The worship of this great and glorious God. He is the blessed and only sovereign. Our great King. Our great Lord. He is unstoppable. He is. He's unstoppable. And we want to find ourselves in Christ, trusting in our God, looking to Him for all that He plans to do. He who did not spare his own son. I quote this almost every sermon, I think at some point. Why not? He who did not spare his own son, but gave... Actually, let me go back to verse 31. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Right? He gave us his son. How will he not also with Christ, with him, graciously give us all things? We go through battles, we fight, but we know that our God is triumphant. He is the victor, and so we look to him. Amen? Let's pray. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless your holy name. We thank you that you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords, and you shall reign forever and ever without end and without rival. Father, we look around, we, we don't see the end from the beginning, we're not God, but we can trust you, we can trust you in the midst of all things, because you're the one to whom belong honor and eternal dominion. And so help us, Father, I pray. Help us, Father, to trust you, 
Help us to lift our eyes from ourselves and from our immediate circumstances that seem so big to gaze upon you, to gaze upon your beauty. We were meant to behold beauty and you are the beautiful and mighty and glorious God that we can see by faith. Help us to see you by faith so that we may fight the good fight of faith by faith in you, our God who is triumphant. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Now, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Think about that. He's able. You can't keep yourself from stumbling, but he's able. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever.